It's time for Branding Business, the only show that brings branding experts and corporate executives together to explore how branding your business can improve both your top-line growth and bottom-line performance. Brought to you by Rikus Baird. And now, here's your host. Welcome to Branding Business with Rikus Baird. My name is Alan Brew, and our special guest today is David Arker, Professor Emeritus of Marketing Strategy at the Haas School of Business, University of Berkeley. And as listeners probably know, David Arker is considered to be one of the leading gurus on branding. He is the author of numerous books on the subject, and his latest is entitled Brand Relevance, Making Competitors Irrelevant, in which he focuses on the critical role of innovation in maintaining brand leadership. David, welcome to Branding Business. Well, I'm glad to be here. Great to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. So, David, um, very intriguing title of the book. Uh, traditionally, companies have spent a lot of money trying to establish a preference for their brands. It's the uh, my brand is better than your brand approach. What's wrong with this approach? It just doesn't work. It, uh, it's quite amazing. You can look at categories after categories and, and, and realize that uh, brand preference competition rarely does anything. I was talking just last week to a fellow that was uh, head of the detergent business at Procter & Gamble, and he used to say, if we can move the market share up a, a tenth of one percent, we had a good quarter. I studied the beer market in Japan over 50 years, and only four times did the market share trajectory change. In three of those times, there was a new subcategory introduced, uh, a dry beer or, or uh, Ichiban or Hapashu, and in the fourth time, uh, some, uh, a category was repositioned. So uh, all that uh, money that's spent on marketing during those 50 years, uh, all those new products, they, they just did nothing. And in, in category after category, you see the same thing. It's only when there is innovation that creates what I call must-haves, customers must-have, uh, only then do you see really any changes. Uh, again, you can look at any category and the same pattern emerges. So, uh, so this brand preference competition is uh, often necessary and justifiable, but it doesn't change anything. Right. That's a that's a, a very incremental approach uh, to brand building, and you mentioned innovation and uh, and subcategories. What exactly do you mean by subcategories, David? Well, a uh, subcategory is defined as a is something that has a a must have. It, it it's not uh, an innovation that involves a a nice to have. It's actually a must have. So you have. Uh, mini computers or network workstations or graphic workstations or build-to-order PCs, those are all uh, sort of really dramatic innovations in the computer space that created must-haves and that customers really didn't want anymore something that didn't have that. And uh, so they all created a, a strong niche. And, uh, uh, and, and, and the implication is that when you do... Uh, perturb the market like that and create a new subcategory, There's the, the old competitors are not going to be relevant anymore because they're not going to have the visibility and credibility in this new market space. So I, I see. So you, 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 in effect, just leapfrog the competition with, uh, with this new subcategory. 
Well, it's not so much leapfrogging the competition, because that means you, you kind of do what they did, but do it better. So mm-hmm. uh, what you're doing is, is, is doing something so that they're not relevant anymore. I mean, Cirque du Soleil is, is, uh, is, uh, doesn't worry about Barnum and Bailey, because they're not relevant for what Cirque du Soleil does. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, the, uh, the graphic workstation people weren't concerned with the uh, mainstream computers back in the 80s because uh, they just weren't relevant for, for what, they've, uh, what, what they're making. So it's uh, more than leapfrogging. It's, or, or it, uh, you might call it leapfrogging, but I, I think it's m- more like you're uh, creating a, a whole new competitive battlefield for which competitors are not relevant. Exactly. That's a very interesting way of looking at it. So can you give me any examples, David? You mentioned um, the, the beer category in Japan. Um, is that a good example of where innovation has uh, disrupted the market? Uh, yeah, it is. But there's, in every uh, uh, area, there are examples, a lot of examples usually, of, of, uh, of how uh, an innovation has come in. You know, take the automobile industry. Um, in Chrysler in 1982, came out with a minivan. It was done by uh, Iacocca, who was a few years before fired by Ford. He was running a company then that was bankrupt, that was bailed out by the government, and uh, it was it was uh, penniless, making bad products. And he put a two thirds of a billion dollars into this minivan idea, and. Uh, uh, what happened was he sold 200,000 of them the first year. He sold uh, 12 or 13 million so far, and he went 16 years with no competition. No competition, none. Uh, there was no viable alternative to the Chrysler minivan for 16 years. You look oh. at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, uh, they start, they've gone 40 or 50 years with no viable competition. It's only in the last three or four years where people have tried to compete with their uh, their sort of must-have, which is a, a rent-a-car service for people whose cars are being fixed. Um, and uh, so in, in both cases, there's just huge, huge payoffs to this ability to uh, create a new subcategory and then create barriers to competition so uh, they, wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't enter. Mm. You mentioned um, Lee Icocca. um who himself is a uh, was a fairly high profile personality? Um, what does it take to create a uh, a subcategory? Does it take an individual with a unique point of view or a uh, uh, you know a, a maverick like Lee Ayakaka, or can any company do this? It's a great question because um, uh, when, when you come to uh, you know, there's a lot of support within the organization, uh, strategically and financially, for incremental innovations to make it a little better than last year. But, but when it comes to uh, disruptive, substantial, or, or transformational innovations, the uh, political support within the organization is pretty weak because you're taking money away from these big, big business units that that want to do what they did last year. So um, it it. It, there's a lot of organizational and personal inhibitions against taking big risks and going for the big innovation. 
And uh, so uh, one way to, uh, to uh, overcome those risks is to have somebody, a strong CEO that's a believer, that believes that strategically it's necessary to put some of your resources behind the big innovation. And Leo uh, Iacocco, Steve Jobs, and people like that uh, are definitely one, uh, one way to get around it. But uh, some organizations are able to, uh, you know, innovate in a, in a strategic major way with, without uh, such a CEO. But definitely a CEO is, is a, uh, you know, is a, is a uh, big asset. I mean, Steve Jobs did it uh, five times in ten years. It was one of the most amazing organizational accomplishments of, of maybe all time. So tell me more about that, uh, David. What, what, what did Steve Jobs do that was so remarkable? Well, he, uh, he created subcategories uh, again and again over a period of 10 or 15 years. I mean, not even counting Pixar, not even counting the, the iMac. Uh, he he did the um, the iPod, the iTunes, the iPad, the Apple stores, and uh, uh, the iPhone. I mean, that's five of them, and, and within a decade, it it was truly remarkable. In each case, he went into an established industry, created a whole new subcategory with some strong must-haves and some strong barriers to competition. So. Uh, uh, it was it was really uh, extraordinary, and I write a uh, uh, a blog called davidocker.com, And one of my entries, I try to analyze what made Steve Jobs so successful, even though he was such a jerk in, with <laughs> respect to his employees. And I compared his management style to uh, uh, Bobby Knight, the f- fabled coach of the Indiana base- the basketball team, who also had a very disagreeable management style. And uh, it's very interesting to to ask that question. Why was Jobs so successful when he was such a uh, harsh, um, uh, you know, superior? Mm. Just thinking of our listeners, David. I mean, those. I mean, Steve Jobs is a one-off, and uh, so is Bobby Knight and Lee Iacocca. I mean, how could how could our listeners who are running the typical business introduce this spirit of innovation? innovation in a disruptive way to emulate you know, Steve Jobs and the rest? Well, I, I think it, the, the one thing that it requires is, is um, you know, a strategic vision for what is uh, needed and what is possible in the marketplace. The second thing is it has to be a, a firm-wide uh, resource allocation. So there has to be resources that support uh, this major innovation, uh, because there's plenty of, of political support for the incremental innovation. And so that's another factor that's, I think, really important. Um, and, and third, it needs to be kind of supported with, a, uh, uh, with the kinds of inputs that, that generate really good uh, you know, uh, ideas for major innovation. That has to come from the marketplace by being a Close to the customer and, uh, and to into their needs and wants and unmet needs, but also mm-hmm. close to technology and what's possible. I mean, that was certainly a, a major part of the genius of Steve Jobs. Um, mm-hmm. 
So there's a lot of things you can do to uh, to make innovation, uh, you know, more feasible in your organization. But I think directionally you have to realize you have to shift resources of at least some resources from incremental to major innovation. And especially if you're um, a public company and you're required to meet quarterly results and uh, deliver your guidance, um, it really is uh, a very difficult balancing act, I should imagine, for CEOs of those kind of companies who have to uh, build on the past to find a way forward. And at the same time... Think beyond in this, uh, it in this blog I mentioned, DavidHocker.com, my last entry was, why do organizations not uh, support big ideas? And, uh, and it's, it's, it's your, it's, your instinct uh, was, it, it's, uh, it's a problem. Hmm. So what can we tell them? I mean, how do we, is it, is it a question of corporate culture? Is it, how do we get that kind of innovative, the, the freedom to fail sort of back to Yeah, game? it is part of the uh, corporate culture. It's the nature of the CEO. It's the nature of the employees. But I think that uh, it, the most important thing is to have a, a, a good budget allocation thing and to recognize the biases against major innovation. Um, and... Uh, and to see if they can be, uh, you know, counteracted when they are made visible. Is there any company out there today who catches your attention in terms of doing something interesting in this area? Well, I, I think, uh, of course, Apple is, uh, is right. But I think that uh, Procter & Gamble is also uh, uh, has some good uh, systems. One of the things that they do is to look externally for innovation. They've made it a uh, goal to have 50% of their innovations come from outside Procter & Gamble. So they don't rely on their internal R&D operation. And, uh, and a lot of, of, of their major uh, innovations in the last five years have come from outside Procter & Gamble, sometimes from competitors, actually. And um, uh, so I think Procter & Gamble is is always on the forefront of, I think, innovation and, uh, and brand management. Um, uh, 3M is, is another good one. 3M has is, is, uh, always had a uh, practice of, of getting their different silo organizations to work together and to, and to take an innovation in one area and apply it in another. And... Uh, uh, and so they've, over many, many decades, have been uh, been able to come out with uh, new innovations. And, and I wrote a book called Spanning Silos, indicating that silos not talking to each other is a big problem in branding for a lot of reasons, but it, it, it also inhibits major innovation because all these big silos want to engage in incremental innovation and to be a little better than last year in, in, in terms of doing what they do. And... Um, uh, uh, and so 3M is, a, is a, one of the rare companies that have really uh, overcome the silo problem and its, and its, uh, and its, and its ability to in inhibit innovation. Right. A great example, uh, 3M and also Procter & Gamble, who have for a long time looked at ways of innovating. And also I noticed that Pepsi, too, is trying to find ways forward in the... In the um, 
beverage category beyond the sodas and uh, sugar drinks. But, but I should say that very small companies often have an advantage in innovating because they have less to use. Um, they're, uh, they're looking for a way to avoid competing, competing with the really big guys, so they're trying to find new niches. And a lot of times, well, I, I, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but 80% of the time, the innovation doesn't come from the large established companies. It comes from outside, a, a small guy that has an idea that uh, is, in a, in is able to leverage it and stay under the radar until they get big and have developed barriers. So uh, uh, this whole idea of creating new subcategories is, is uh, even more uh, important for the, the small business. And you see so many small businesses being acquired by the large ones. Uh, I should imagine simply to access this this uh, innovative uh, platform or technology they've come up with. Yeah, you, uh, Clorox is is sort of famous or infamous for never in its whole history being able to uh, to uh, innovate internally. But they're very good at buying small innovative companies and then scaling them. And there's a lot of big companies that take the Coca-Cola uh, turned its back on water for for decades to its detriment, but then they they bought a lot of uh, water and juice companies and uh, and tried to scale them as a way to uh, you know come to the party. You know, I, as you talk, David, I, I can't help thinking of Kodak, um, um, our late lamented Kodak. Um, how does a brand uh, avoid becoming irrelevant, like like Kodak? Well, good question. It uh, it's all about. There's two ways of being uh, becoming irrelevant. One is you're no longer making what they're buying. The second is you lose visibility and credibility. And uh, with respect to the latter, uh, every brand needs to have more energy. It needs to be more visible. And. Uh, uh, we've had data that show that brands globally are, are declining in equity, and the exception are those with energy. So every brand needs energy. You either have to have energy through new products or you have to find something with energy and attach yourself to it, like the Avon March for Breast Cancer or, or Pampers uh, Baby Care Program or something like that. Now, um, uh, the, uh, the other way is that you, you stop making what they're buying. So if you're a fast food uh, a franchise and people are starting to buy healthy foods. Uh, then you have to you have to make a decision. You have to either keep doing what you're doing better and hope there's a uh, a cadre of people that aren't going to be marching off to this healthy thing, uh, and or you can uh, put healthy stuff into your menu and and try to be acceptable for to the people that are interested in healthy foods. So. Uh, uh, or you can uh, diversify and 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 stop opening, you know, unhealthy restaurants. Start opening healthy restaurants, and uh, you know, like Starbucks is now you know, starting to open this evolution, whatever it is, uh, uh, restaurant which is going to be juices and vegetables and so forth. That's going to be healthy for you. They're going to have a whole new growth pattern. So. Uh, so those are, are kind of three ways you can try to adapt uh, in, into this to deal with the problem that they're you know, they're not buying what I'm making anymore. You know, oh. one of the most interesting things uh, 
the young people in our country don't buy cars anymore, uh, or they're buying much less than before. So the whole car industry has a relevance problem with respect to the people in their in their twenties. Um, and so uh, what they're doing to address that is is quite interesting, but it's a difficult, difficult problem. And people in their twenties, how are they? Are they just avoiding cars, or finding other means of transport, or are they just well, averse uh, to, to the, buying them? Cars is uh, is the ultimate self-expressive um, purchase, and the people in their twenties don't aren't after self-expressive benefits anymore, um, and they're more interested in the internet and computer games and so on, and uh, uh, there's a, a the Zipcar business where you borrow a car instead of buy one is appealing to those people in their 20s. And uh, a lot of them live in urban areas where there's mass transit, and, and, they, and they just use that or bicycle. And, uh, uh, and, and it's just harder to capture their imagination. Like in the old days, the VW Bug or the Pontiac, you know, muscle machine or... Um, uh, you know the Mazda Miata would would or the or the Cube the Nissan Cube would mm -hmm. uh, you know capture the attention, but that's getting harder and harder. Well, so the whole in, the whole car industry has a has a relevance problem when it comes to the uh, the twenty somethings who are simply no longer interested in finding a way of expressing themselves through. Exactly, that's been true in Japan for ten years. It's a horrible problem in Japan. And now it's reached the states. So what are they doing about it? How are they finding ways to appeal to these people who are dis disaffected by the whole notion of a car? Well, what, what they're doing is they're trying to find some magic pro brand that will appeal to them, like the, the hybrid uh, category or something it has got some potential in terms of creating some interest and loyalty the Prius uh, does well in that, that segment. And, uh, uh, and then there's the Cube, and Ford has a, uh, a product, and Chevy has a product that's, that's absolutely aimed at the 20s. And yeah. it tends to be a little more utilitarian uh, rather than, um, you know, sexy. Right. I know whether whether... Uh, Chevy and Ford are the brands to do it with. They seem to be very uh, 20th century <laughs> for people well, in the 20s. Well, it is. It, it's, um, you know, a lot of the uh, brands that are doing the best with the 20s are foreign brands. Mm. Well, that's, a, that's remarkable. So it's visibility, energy, and the overall goal is not to be the best, but the only one doing what you're doing. Yes, it's a whole new way of looking at it. Instead of my brand is better than your brand, we want to be the only brand that does what we do. Well, that's quite a challenge. Um, David, um, well, it's also time, quite an opportunity. Today, I, any last thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with on this subject? No, uh, um, I, I guess not. I, again, uh, if they want more of my week-to-week -week thoughts, I'm on davidocker.com and I'm um, associated with Profit, a company that does brand and marketing consulting, making competitors irrelevant. Right. And you can find us, of course, at brandingbusiness.com. Thanks once again for listening.
You've been listening to Branding Business, the only show that brings branding experts and corporate executives together to explore how branding your business can improve both your top-line growth and bottom-line performance. To hear more, simply visit our website, brandingbusiness.com, or tune in next week to learn how you, too, can build your brand and move your business forward. Brought to you by Rikus Baird.